Hello everyone, my name is Ali Khayat. Uh, I'm a general surgery resident uh, in the Kuwaiti board and I will, I'm part of Surge Kuwait team and I will be hosting today's session. We, we have around 300 people uh, joining us now and people are still joining. Uh, I would like uh, to thank you all for your interest, for participation, uh, for, uh, and participation with us in this surgical review course. Please know that our sessions are interactive. If the speaker uh, asks any questions, please answer in the chat panel. Also make sure that the chat panel is set to all panelists and attendees so that we can all see uh, your uh, text. You're welcome to participate in discussion in the chat panel. Feel free to ask any questions throughout the webinar in the Q&A panel and our speaker will answer as much as possible during the live session. There will be questions in a poll format at the end of the session and we encourage you to participate. Now, with all pleasure, I would like to introduce uh, our guest speaker for today, uh, Dr. Mohammed Jamal. Dr. Mohammed Jamal is a consultant surgeon at Jabal Al Ahmed Hospital and a professor at Kuwait University. He graduated uh, from University of Aberdeen in UK uh, with honors. He completed uh, the American and Canadian Boards of Surgery, followed by Platability Surgery Fellowship in McGill University and Bariatric Fellowship in Cleveland Clinic. He's the program director of our surgical foundation uh, program in Kuwait, and he's the chairman of the transplantation department in the Kuwait University. He's also the head of liver and pancreatic surgical unit at Jabal Hospital. Dr. Mohammed is an active researcher with many publications and is a regular participant and speaker in multiple conferences around the world. And now without further ado, Dr. Mohammed Jamal, once you're ready, Thank you. thank you, Dr. Ali, for the introduction, and thank you for uh, Kuwait Surgical Association and SurgQ for organizing this uh, excellent review course and uh, inviting me for this. Uh, Ali, but I have a question. Are we going to open the door in the Okay, good. Today, I'm going to uh, talk about benign and malignant gastric conditions. Um, on Tuesday, I will also talk further about more gastric tumors and small bowel tumors. But the contents of my um, presentation today uh, will be first on peptic ulcer disease, which is the most uh, important and the commonest benign gastric condition uh, that is seen by surgeons and gastroenterologists. And the second part of the presentation will be in on gastric adenocarcinoma and lymphoma. On Tuesday, I will talk about GIST tumors as well as small bowel tumors. So if we, this is a, a historic uh, uh, quote from a very uh, ancient uh, English book. It says that the stomach has the liver below it, like a fire underneath a cauldron. Cauldron is like a jitter with a, a big pan. And thus the stomach is like a kettle of food. The gallbladder is its cook and the liver is the fire. At first glance, you might think that this is a very um, crude presentation or false presentation. But if you think about it deeply, it's kind of, 
there is some logic to it. I mean, the liver is actually, is truly the fire of, uh, with all the enzymes that it's producing uh, to digest and cook the food. Now, if we talk about peptic, peptic uh, ulcer disease, uh, peptic ulcer disease uh, is caused by peptic ulcers, which are focal defects in the gastric or proximal duodenal mucosa, and it can extend down to the submucosa. يعني لما لما الالسر لما الانجري extends to the submucosa or deeper caused by the acid, this is caused. This is called a peptic ulcer. It's not only an injury to the mucosa. It's an injury that extends to the submucosa. It can also happen, yani the peptic ulcers, they don't happen only in the stomach and the proximal duodenum. In two other places where the peptic ulcers can occur, in Michel's diverticulum and also in the distal esophagus. Of course, pathophysiology is about defense and repair. And it's ultimately caused by an imbalance between the action of peptic acid and the mucosal defenses. Surgery is historic now, but it's important to talk and mention the surgical procedures performed in the past for benign peptic ulcer diseases. Leish, because uh, many disciplines, in particular bariatric surgery discipline, emerged from surgery for peptic ulcer diseases and also some of the surgeries for peptic ulcer disease are similar to the surgeries performed for malignant gastric uh, uh, disease and you still at times require to do surgery for uh, emergency uh, treatment of complications of peptic ulcer disease. Why did peptic ulcer disease surgery become almost historic in the past, Khangul fi end of 70s, beginning of 80s, general surgeons, when they are on call, they will perform mostly gastric surgeries. But the discovery of H. pylori, along with the advent of endoscopy and uh, proton pump inhibitors changed the game completely. Um, these three things, H. pylori discovery, a proton pump inhibitor uh, uh, discovery will endoscopy uh, uh, creation changed uh, the way we we deal and operate uh, with peptic ulcer disease. But surgery is still utilized in specific situations. طبعاً قصة الإتش بايلوري قصة مشهورة. H. pylori uh, bacteria is a major risk for peptic ulcer disease. It also increases the risk of gastric adenocarcinoma and gastric lymphoma. is a pathologist from Australia, and the other one is a uh, uh, internist. And both uh, discovered this pylori in, mid, in the mid '80s. Uh, the internist there was only a registrar at that time when he uh, discovered it and uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2005. It's important to eradicate H. pylori if you 
have a, a patient with symptoms related to H. pylori. The diagnosis is usually uh, via endoscopic enteral biopsy or via urease test. You can do histology, culture, or uh, PCR. The treatment, Ibarra uh, and the proton pump inhibitor for one month, along with two antibiotics for seven to 14 days. It's called the triple therapy. The antibiotics usually are uh, clarithromycin uh, and omeprazole or clarithromycin with amoxicillin. The eradication should be confirmed after the completion of treatment. طبعاً, the first offender, سبب الأول للبيبتيك ألسر ديزيز هو الإتش بايلوري. The second cause will be the NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The ingestion of NSAIDs is the second commonest cause of peptic ulcer disease. The risk of complications increases with age older than 60 and patients having a prior GI event or uh, patients who are using steroids and anticoagulation. طبعاً, the medical treatment of peptic ulcer disease is easy. It's proton pump inhibitors with eradication of H. pylori if H. pylori is positive. Peptic ulcer disease in the stomach, ulcers in the stomach, 70% of them are associated with H. pylori. In the proximal duodenum, about 90 to 95% of duodenal ulcers are associated with H. pylori. And then, how do peptic ulcer disease present? The commonest cause of uh, the commonest symptom at uh, presentation usually is abdominal pain. It's not reflux. GERD, mala alaqa bi al H. Pylori ولا لا علاقة بالبيبتيك ألسر ديزيز الحارج الارتجاع أسر الهضم اللي هو الارتجاع الأحماض ما لا علاقة بالإتش بالوري البين is usually epigastric well localized relieved by food if it's a duodenal ulcer and worsened by food if it's a gastric ulcer so usually patients with duodenal ulcer will be more obese those with gastric ulcer will be uh, will lose uh, weight the pain might radiate to the back and it might be brought on by emotional stress walakin emotional stress is not a cause of peptic ulcer disease before the discovery of h pylori of h pylori it used to be uh, it used we used to think in the stress la alaqa bi al peptic ulcer disease wa hunak qisas bi sha'n dhalik mathalan kanu sabiqan يجدون أن في عوائل معينة and this is an interesting story يمكن ما لها علاقة بالجراحة يجدون أن في عوائل معينة تجد في العائلة أن غالباً متوترين عصبيين وعندهم قرحة فالاعتقاد أن هذه العائلة بسبب عصبيتها ووراثتهم للعصبية تسببت لديهم العصبية أو النفسية بالقرحة ولكن عقب ما اكتشفنا الاتش بايلوري شنو اكتشفنا؟ ان اغلب العوائل تصاب كلها بالاتش بايلوري، يعني الام، الابو، الاخوان، الابناء كلهم فيهم اتش بايلوري بسبب they are sharing the same food and the same water، فبالتالي السبب ان العائله كلها عندها القرحه لان كلهم شربوا او تم إصابتهم بالإتش بالوري وما له علاقة بالنفسية أو بهذه الأمور الأخرى طبعاً 
Now I'm going to talk about emergency procedures. Oh, metal jarrah, when is the surgeon going to be called in the year 2020 to operate in patients with peptic ulcer disease? You can see in this x-ray, just there are many people in the audience uh, who cannot understand Arabic. Uh, if you can use English only, please. All right, good. So uh, you, you can see here that, so when is the surgeon going to be called to operate on peptic ulcer disease? In the year 2020. Now I'm going to focus on um, the surgical treatment for complications of peptic ulcer disease. You can see in this chest x-ray, I mean, the lung is clear, it's black, the air is black, and then there is a, a fine sliver of, uh, there is a white color there with my pointer. White line separating the lung air from an air below it. And, and likewise, on the left side, you can see also that white line separating the air in the lung from a black, area here which is air so this is called air under diaphragm this chest x-ray is the commonest x-ray that you will see in surgical exams an x-ray showing air under diaphragm so when you have a patient with uh, an acute abdomen and air under diaphragm uh, this is a sign of a perforated viscous and uh, a, a presentation of uh, a perforated duodenal ulcer, patients with perforated duodenal ulcer, they will present with uh, uh, acute uh, abdomen, board-like rigidity in examination, tachycardia, hypotension, fever, high white count. You will do a chest x-ray and you will find uh, this in the chest x-ray, air under the diaphragm. That's a perforated duodenal ulcer. So what are the presentation of peptic ulcer disease? Pain, perforation, perforated gastric ulcer or a perforated duodenal ulcer, bleeding, bleeding gastric ulcer or a bleeding duodenal ulcer, and obstruction. And the obstruction will usually happen at the prepyloric region. It is called a gastric outlet obstruction, and it will be manifested by a delayed gastric emptying, anorexia, or nausea accompanied by vomiting. So perforation, bleeding, obstruction you will operate in those three complications of peptic ulcer disease. In terms of a perforated duodenal ulcer, your management. So first you will see that air under a diaphragm, uh, along with the signs on examination, your management will be first to stabilize the patient. So you'll stabilize the patient with IV, IV fluids, IV antibiotics, and IV proton pump inhibitor infusion. You will uh, uh, consult the intensive care unit if the patient is sick, and then you will take the patient to the operating room. Um, we usually utilize uh, laparoscopic expiration for patients with uh, perforated duodenal ulcer, but you will not be faulted if you say that you'll go for a laparotomy. I would say in, in, in your exams, in the oral exams, to show that you are a safe surgeon, uh, you can say that you'll take the patient for a laparotomy. Uh, it would be my first answer, but I would say as well that uh, uh, we can also perform laparoscopy, but since I haven't done that much laparoscopy, I'm going to take the patient for a laparotomy. At laparotomy, you will wash, wash, wash as much as you can. Maybe you, you may, might use five or six liters of fluid to wash the abdomen, and then 
you will do a gray and patch repair. And the gray and patch repair is very simple. You will take a, a, a tongue of the uh, omentum and you will patch the area in the duodenum, the perforation uh, with the uh, piece of omentum and you will suture around it. You wash as much as you can and then you will put the drains, two or three drains. Don't be stingy with the drains. Put as much drains as you can uh, because drainage of this is important. You will also put an NG tube post-operatively NG tube uh, uh, and the Foley catheter post-operatively you will continue the IV antibiotics and you will do an H, uh, you'll do H pylori eradication because as I mentioned at the beginning, 95% of patients with duodenal ulcers will have uh, uh, H pylori infection. So a perforated duodenal ulcer, Graham patch repair. In terms of uh, bleeding duodenal ulcer, you will do a pyloromyotomy and suture repair of the bleeding vessel and then with a pyloroplasty. Now, what is a pyloromyotomy? Simply, pyloromyotomy means opening the gastrodidinal junction and you will open it transversely. You will open there and you will see the bleeding and then you will suture the bleeding at 12 o'clock and at six o'clock. The bleeding, the picture in the operating room will not be like this. You are not gonna see the vessel. You just need to imagine the vessel, which is the gastrodidinal artery and then you will suture that vessel or the area of bleeding at 12 and at six o'clock. If you do that, this is a favorite exam question. They will ask you, you did a pyromyotomy, you did a suture repair, you put a suture at six o'clock, you put a suture at 12 o'clock, and there is still bleeding. You would say that you do another suture, a U-stitch, it's called a U-stitch at three o'clock, because sometimes you'll have a transverse vessel there that you'll need to suture. After that, you will close your pyloromyotomy in a pyloroplasty fashion so that you don't narrow the area. So for a bleeding duodenal ulcer, you'll do a pyloromyotomy, suture repair of the bleeding vessel, and a pyloroplasty. Very simple. You can do, do that open, of course, unless you have advanced laparoscopic skills. You wouldn't say in the exam that you'd go laparoscopically for that. Now, um, some uh, papers might, might utilize angiography and demobilization. Uh, there is a very important point. You would do a gastroscopy first in bleeding. You are, you are not going to go right away for a, uh, an operative approach. You will stabilize the patient, correct the coagulation, make sure they don't have a liver disease, um, um, wash the stomach with an E-wall tube, then you will do a gastroscopy. At gastroscopy, uh, they will try to control the uh, bleeding endoscopically. If they cannot control it the first time, you will go a second time with endoscopy. If the second endoscopist cannot control the bleeding, then you would go for surgery. This is the same with a bleeding gastric ulcer. It is simpler to deal with the bleeding gastric ulcer because you are not gonna get narrowing when you do a pyloromyotomy and a pyloroplasty. You'll just open the stomach, do a gastrostomy, you do a gastrotomy, find the bleeding vessels, suture, uh, um, repair it. That's of course, after you fail endoscopy. Endoscopy is your first approach and you'll do it twice. If two endoscopies fail and the patient continue to bleed, then you are gonna go for surgery, either in a bleeding gastric ulcer or a bleeding duodenal ulcer.
The third situation where you need to operate on a peptic ulcer disease will be the gastrocautilate obstruction. This is a case I have done recently um, in a patient with a gastrocautilate obstruction. You can see how narrow is the area there at the gastrodidinal junction. This is very narrow and fibrotic. Patients would usually present with uh, gastric distension, uh, repeated uh, uh, vomiting. Uh, you would do a chest x-ray and you will find that the patient's stomach is very is huge and dilated. You do an endoscopy and the endoscopy, the endoscopist will tell you that they cannot pass the pylorus. Usually your first approach will be to put an NG tube, you would feed the patient. Uh, if you can bypass the obstruction with the uh, uh, with a with a with a tube, it's fine. If you can't, then you will decompress the stomach and uh, uh, feed the patient maybe by um, uh, by do by TPN first, and start the the treatment uh, for this patient as if you are treating a peptic ulcer disease. So you would give H pylori eradication. You would give PPI therapy and infusion for three days, and then you'll continue the, the maximum therapy with the H. pylori eradication. And you can give the patient up to four to six weeks. So you treat the patient conservatively for four to six weeks, repeat the endoscopy. If still the endoscopist cannot pass the area, then after four to six weeks, despite maximal therapy, then you will go and take the patient to the operating room and perform a resection. Usually, uh, uh, if you are sure that this is a benign disease, you can do a bypass, but I would preferably do a distal uh, gastrectomy because you might never know it could be cancer uh, uh, causing this. So, in summary, surgical inter intervention is still required in 8 to 20% of patients developing complications from peptic ulcer disease. The surgical therapy will serve several purposes. It will salvage the patient from life-threatening complications, mainly perforation, hemorrhage, and gastrocautilate obstruction. And, and it can provide cure for the disease uh, in the form of protection from recurrence. But we know that medical therapy and H. pylori eradication can prevent recurrence. So we don't perform major procedures uh, in those patients to prevent recurrence these days. Um, I'm going now to talk about the historic surgeries performed for peptic ulcer disease. It's important to understand uh, uh, these surgeries. So in the past, they didn't have proton pump inhibitors to reduce acidity. So what would they do to reduce acidity of the stomach and prevent peptic ulcer disease? They will do a vagotomy and distal gastrectomy. When they do a distal gastrectomy, they will remove the antrum, which is the source of acid secretion, right? So if you don't have PPI in the 70s, what would you, you would remove the antrum and you would do a vagotomy to reduce the acid secretion, right? These two surgeries, nowadays, if you read about peptic ulcer disease, you will come across vagotomy, distal gastrectomy, Beroth 1, Beroth 2, highly selective vagotomy. These are of historical importance. You will not perform them these days for peptic ulcer disease because H. pylori eradication and proton pump inhibitor replaced and killed those surgeries. I, I did vagotomy very rarely recently uh, uh, for a patient with marginal ulcer post-bariatric surgery, but I have never 
needed to do a vagotomy uh, for peptic ulcer disease. Now, it's important as well, and whenever you read about peptic ulcer disease, you will come across types of peptic ulcer. Types of peptic ulcer these days do not change the management much, but in the past, when they did not have PPI, it was important to know what type of peptic ulcer it is. Why? I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Because, first of all, there are four types of uh, uh, peptic ulcers. There is type 1, which is at the junction, at the lesser curvature, at the junction between the fundic and the anterior region. Type 1 and type 4, which is a high ulcer, these two types are not associated with acid secretion. So in the, in the 70s, if you are going to operate and you find out that the ulcers are either type 1 or type 4, you will not be very aggressive in performing procedures that are going to reduce the acid because you know that these two types are not caused by acids. But type 2 and type 3, which uh, uh, consists of a prepyloric ulcer and a adrenal ulcer, these are caused by high acid secretion. So it's important to do maximum uh, acid inhibition in terms of the surgery. In the left there, these are the, 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 the areas of the stomach. It's important to know the areas of the stomach, okay? For anatomical purposes, for any uh, 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 operation in the stomach. So you have the lesser curvature, you have the greater curvature. On top there, you have the fundus. This is the very important part that you remove, you remove during sleep surgery. You have the esophagus. The cardia is the first few centimeter in the stomach near the esophagus. Fundus, body, antrum, prepyloric region, pyloric, pylorus, and the duodenum. These are the areas of the stomach. This is the anatomy of the stomach. It's important to know. Again, this, this is another uh, um, diagram showing different types uh, of uh, ulcers. Again, this is not very relevant nowadays. It is academic and historic. It's not going to change your management much. Why? Because we have proton pump inhibitors, because we understand that uh, the role of H. pylori in the formation of peptic ulcers. Now, this is a highly selective vagotomy. You'll come across that often. We don't need to perform, the, to perform these surgeries these days because we have H, uh, uh, PPI and H. pylori eradication. This is distal gastrectomy with Berot 1. So what is distal gastrectomy with Berot 1? Berot was a famous uh, Austrian surgeon who trained most of the famous surgeons in the beginning of last century and the end of the 19th century. So whenever you, he did the first gastrectomy ever and he performed many different uh, uh, first procedures. His, his um, students also um, were surgeons who performed some of the first uh, uh, procedures uh, ever surgically. And in Birroth 1, it's a reconstruction. So if you do a distal gastrectomy, you are going to remove the antrum. You remove the antrum without touching the left gastropiploic artery. Okay, so if you cut the left gastropiploic artery, the right gastric artery, the right gastropiploic, this is called a subtotal gastrectomy. But if you only cut the right gastric artery and the last uh, right gastropiploic, this is called a distal gastrectomy. So you are going to cut the stomach. How you are going to reconnect the stomach to the duodenum? If you do end-to-end, -end, 
like that. Uh, this is called a Birroth 1 anastomosis. It's basically a gastrodidinal anastomosis. It is not recommended uh, uh, because of uh, marginal ulcers and uh, remnant, remnant cancer. And the preferred method of reconstruction nowadays is a distal gastrectomy with Birroth 2. What is a Birroth 2? It's a gastrogenostomy. It's an end to side gastrogenostomy. So end of the stomach to the side of a loop of jejunum. This is a Birroth 2. It's a reconstruction. The reconstruction is with, with Birroth 2, but it's the same area resected. You can see there that there is a vagotomy performed as well. Now, so I'm going to end now the talk on peptic ulcer disease, and then we'll move on with gastric adenocarcinoma and gastric lymphoma. So in summary, commoner surgeries performed today for peptic ulcer disease are Graham patch and ligation of bleeding vessels. The use of PPI and treatment of H. pylori made us very rarely perform distal gastrectomy and vagotomy. This is basically the summary of peptic ulcer disease. I'm gonna move on now to uh, gastric adenocarcinoma. So tumors of the stomach, you have GIST, you have polyps, you have adenocarcinoma and lymphoma. I'm gonna leave the GIST tumors for the talk on Tuesday on small bowel cancers. In terms of the gastric polyps, there are five types of gastric polyps, inflammatory, hamartomas, hamartomatous, heterotopic, hyperplastic and adenomatous. Hyperplastic are common and they are not precancerous. Stomach adenocarcinoma. 95% of gastric cancers are adenocarcinomas. And gastric tumors are classified according to their site in the stomach. So either proximal tumors or distal tumors because the surgery performed for these tumors are different depending on the anatomy. In the proximal gastric unit, you would usually perform a total gastrectomy, you remove the whole stomach. In the distal gastric unit, you will do a distal gastrectomy or a subtotal gastrectomy. These are the three surgeries performed for stomach cancer. Total gastrectomy, you remove the whole stomach. Distal gastrectomy, you remove the antrum. Subtotal gastrectomy, you are going to remove about 80% of the stomach. You will only leave the stomach with the left gastric artery and the short gastrics. What are the risk factors? The risk factors include H. pylori, pernicious anemia, atrophic gastritis, PJ syndrome, and Lee Romani syndrome um, are heredi uh, can cause uh, an increased risk of gastric cancer, also BRCA2, and HNPCC. Diets rich in salt, smoked or poorly preserved foods, nitrates, they are all risk factors for gastric cancer. So before the invention of the fridge, food usually was salted or smoked, and H. pylori was not discovered. So gastric cancer at the beginning of the last century was one of the most, the commonest cancers worldwide. And the, uh, the invention of fridge, discovery of H. pylori, changed the map of um, gastric cancer all over the world.
the most common genetic abnormality in sporadic gastric cancer affect the P53 and COX-2 genes. Recently, a germline mutation in CDH1 gene encoding for E. cadherin was shown to be associated with hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. Gastric tumors are broadly categorized into two types, intestinal and diffuse. The intestinal type arises from the gastric mucosa. It's associated with older patients and distal tumors. The diffuse type is believed to originate from the lamina propria of the stomach and grows in an infiltrative submucosal pattern. The diffuse type is associated with younger patients and proximal tumors. In terms of the clinical presentation, weight loss is the commonest clinical presentation. Remember when we talked about peptic ulcer disease, gastric ulcers, it can be malignant or benign, uh, cause pain when a patient is eating. So usually they will not eat because eating will precipitate and bring on uh, the pain. So weight loss, abdominal pain, nausea, anorexia, dysphagia if the tumor is proximal, uh, or repeated nausea and vomiting of the tumor's distance. So the, if the tumor is proximal near, near the G-junction, there will be obstruction. If the tumor is distal near the pylorus, also it, it can cause uh, a gastric outlet obstruction. Um, the if gastric pain is, is made worsened by food. Sorry, this is a, a mistake there. It should be, uh, it's made worse with food, not relieved by food. And the dysphagia is usually associated with tumors of the cardio of the junction. Enteral tumors, as I mentioned before, can cause gastric outlet obstruction. These are favorite exam questions for medical students, signs on examination. We don't see them nowadays. Uh, palpable, rarely. I mean, you, you can see sometimes the palpable supraclavicular lymph node, which is called the Verkau node. A mass palpable in the rectal examination called Blummer shelf a palpable periumbilical mass, Sister Mary Joseph node. In terms of the initial evaluation, um, of course, you'll do a complete history and physical examination. Uh, you'll do routine lab studies. Uh, after that, you'll perform the upper endoscopy if you have suspicion. Uh, the upper endoscopy is important for diagnosis and uh, to take a biopsy for pathology sampling. You'd also, for staging, do a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis. EUS nowadays is, is essential, it's important. You have to mention that in your exam. Endoscopic ultrasound preoperatively is important as well as PET scan. Diagnostic laparoscopy is not a must, but you would utilize it if you have a high suspicion of uh, uh, peritoneal uh, disease. But you have to perform endoscopy with EUS, SCT, and PET scan. In terms of the U.S., 20 to 30% of patients who have disease that is beyond T1 stage on EUS will be found to have peritoneal metastasis despite having a negative CT scan. Also, EUS is important because you will give neoadjuvant chemotherapy if the patient is, uh, is not N0 and if the patient is having a disease more than T2. I'm going to talk about that uh, uh, later and explain it further. So this is the staging. T1, tumor extending to the submucosa, T2 to the muscularis propria, T3 to the serosa, T4 to other structures. If you have any tumor at EOS uh, extending beyond T2, 
then you are going to give me adjuvant chemotherapy. If you have any suspicion of lymph node involvement at the AUS, preoperatively, you need to give me adjuvant chemotherapy. You give chemotherapy before the operation itself because it is associated with better survival. In terms of the lymph node uh, status, if you have one to two positive lymph nodes, that's an N1, uh, N2 is three to six positive lymph nodes, and N3 is seven or more uh, positive lymph nodes. So what is the management? Now, you have a patient with a malignant gastric ulcer, you took a biopsy, it's gastric carcinoma, you did the US PET scan, in the management, you are going to assess their accessibility, give neoadjuvant therapy in, ter in the, the terms of FLOT uh, 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 regimen, and then you will perform the surgery. What is the extent of the resection? In terms of the extent of the resection, there is no difference between total and subtotal gastrectomy if you can achieve an R0 resection. If you can remove the whole tumor, you don't need to remove the whole stomach. It is better to leave some stomach because the quality of life will be much better. And you need to take six centimeters uh, uh, a margin above and below the tumor. It's important to do that because of the potential of submucosal spread of the tumor. These are the surgeries performed. So um, this is a subtotal gastrectomy uh, with a burrow of two reconstruction. So you will have a proximal gastric unit along with a side of jejunum, so end to side, or a total gastrectomy. In the total gastrectomy, you will do a row Y reconstruction. You will not do a loop jejunum reconstruction. Why you wouldn't do a loop? Because you will have an increased risk of bioreflux. So if you remove the whole stomach, you'll do an esophago jejunostomy in a row Y configuration, and you'll do another jejunostomy there to divert by it. Again, this is another slide of operations performed for stomach cancer. So you either do a subtotal gastrectomy with gastrogegenostomy, a distal gastrectomy with gastrogegenostomy, or a total gastrectomy with a raw Y configuration. Um, if the tumor is very distal, you can get six centimeters above the tumor without taking the left gastropiploic, then you will do a distal gastrectomy. If the tumor is in the body, you need to go up to a six centimeter to get a um, negative margin, then you'll do a subtotal gastrectomy. If the tumor is in the cardia, then you might do um, a, a total gastrectomy. In terms of the complications, you will have leak, bleeding, duodenal stump blowout, PE, and bile reflux. Duodenal stump blowout is a very important complication because it's easy to miss and not recognize. And basically, you see that area of the duodenum that you leave after the resection. That area can leak out. And if it leaks out, it's going to leak out bile and pancreatic juice. Very bad and lethal complication because it's hard to detect. You'll do your upper GI swallow. Let's say you have a sick patient postoperatively. You'll do the upper GI swallow you find no leak because the anastomosis is there. So you think the patient is fine, but basically he's having a worse leak in that area. So you, have, you need to have a, a very high index of suspicion to detect and discover duodenal blowout leaks because prompt management is very important in these patients. 
Now, what about GE junction tumor? Tumors of the GE junction have been further divided according to the Seward classification. It's also referred to as adenocarcinoma of the esophageal junction. The operation can be di different there. Sometimes it can require an esophagectomy, not only a total gastrectomy. And in terms of the Seward cl classification, they are further divided into three uh, uh, types of tumors. You have the type 1 Seward, which is tumor associated, tumors associated with Barrett's esophagus, and they are true esophageal cancer growing. So it's from the esophagus growing into the uh, uh, GE junction. They require an esophagectomy. Type 2 cancers are junctional tumor, uh, tumors. They are truly lying within two centimeter of the uh, squamo-columnar junction at the level of the cardia. They might need also an esophagectomy. Type 3 cancers are present within the, the subcardial region of the stomach, and you can perform total gastrectomy for those cancers. So, type 1 seward, you will do an esophagectomy. The optimal surgical management of type 2 and type 3 cancers is controversial, but the incidence of lower mediastinal lymph node metastasis is high, 10 to 40%. So you should consider uh, an esophagectomy. Thoracotomy used to be, it used to be a debate of whether to perform an, a thoracotomy to get an adequate lymph node dissection in that area. But now, it, thoracotomy is considered important to get adequate lymph node uh, dissection. Uh, some authors, uh, I mean, there is some uh, um, uh, resurgence of, uh, in the literature of uh, uh, surgeons recommending proximal subtotal gastrectomy. So maybe for Seward 3, instead of doing a total gastrectomy, you can do a proximal resection of the stomach, and then you would anastomose the esophagus to the distal gastric unit. This was not the preferred method in the past because of high incidence of um, ulcers and bile uh, reflux but, uh, and uh, gastroparesis, uh, but some surgeons are performing that now and some are reporting good results. But for our sake, we say that there are three operations for gastric tumors, total gastrectomy, distal gastrectomy, subtotal gastrectomy. If it's a Seward 1 or 2, you might also perform an esophagectomy. In terms of the extent of uh, uh, lymph lymphadenectomy, uh, it used to be a matter of debate, but now D2 should be uh, the standard of care. The draining lymph nodes uh, basin of the stomach have been meticulously divided into 16 stations, as you can see here by Japanese surgeons. Station one to six are perigastric, and the remaining 10 are located adjacent to major vessels behind the, the pancreas and along the aorta. D1 lymphadenectomy basically refers to the limited dissection of only the perigastric lymph nodes. D2 dissection is an extended lymph node dissection entailing removal of the nodes along the hepatic left gastric, celiac, and splenic arteries, as well as lymph nodes around the splenic hilum. D3 dissection is a, an extended lymphadenectomy. Some Japanese surgeons used to perform that in the past, and it is used to describe a D2 dissection plus the removal of the nodes within the portahepatis and the periaortic uh, uh, regions. 
the recommended approach now and the standard of care is performing a D2 uh, uh, lymphadenectomy. Um, the research is in, uh, conflicting. The randomized controlled trials are conflicting between D1 and D2, but uh, um, uh, in, in many centers, D2 uh, is uh, now the standard of care. In terms of the chemotherapy, we started with the McDonald protocol, which is adjuvant chemotherapy. You go in, do your resection, then postoperatively, you will give a 5-FU with leucoborin plus radiation therapy. This used to be the standard of care in many centers in the United States, adjuvant chemotherapy, post-operative chemotherapy, the radiotherapy, the McDonald protocol. And then came along the magic trial, um, which uh, used uh, epirubicin, cisplatin, and 5-FU. They used to give uh, three cycles. Uh, uh, so you have leucoborin, epirubicin, cisplatin, 5-FU, three cycles preoperatively, new adjuvant, and then three cycles postoperatively. In the EUS, if you have lymph nodes positivity or you have a tumor above T2, you would give magic protocol. Three cycles pre-op, three cycles uh, post-op. But currently, we have the FLOT trial, which was published in 2019. It is now the standard of care in many center centers. If you look at the NCCN, you still have the magic protocol and the FLOT protocol, but in many centers, they are using the FLOT protocol as the new adjuvant chemotherapy uh, 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 protocol for patients with gastric adenocarcinomas. And basically, they will give four cycles of fluorouracil plus leucoborin, guzaloplatin, and docetaxel preoperatively, and four cycles postoperatively. If D2 is not performed, then you will add radiotherapy postoperatively. So new adjuvant chemotherapy, in the form of FLOT is the standard of care for gastric adenocarcinoma. This is an important update. Now, um, I'm going to move on to the last three slides and we'll be done talking about gastric lymphoma. The stomach is the most common site of lymphoma in the GI system. Over 95% of stomach lymph of gastric lymphoma is of the non-Hodgkin's type and it consists of 4% of all gastric malignancies. It can be divided, there's also the low-grade mild lymphoma. It's a different type of lymphoma. Low-grade mild lymphoma is basically a monoclonal proliferation of B cells. It arises from a background of chronic gastritis associated with H. pylori. What you do for low-grade mild lymphoma is you eradicate H. pylori. If you do H. pylori eradication, the low-grade mouth lymphoma will disappear, but you need to have also a careful uh, uh, follow-up. If low-grade lymphoma persists after H. pylori eradication, you might consider radiation uh, if the disease is confined to the stomach. High-grade lymphoma, this is the last slide. Uh, High-grade lymphoma, uh, mouth lymphoma, they will have similar symptoms to gastric cancer patients. 50% will have systemic symptoms, such as fever, weight loss, and night sweats. It is diagnosed by endoscopy and biopsy. You need to do a diligent search for uh, extra gastric disease um, before the diagnosis of localized uh, primary gastric lymphoma is made. So you'll do AUS, CT, maybe bone marrow biopsy. Um, 
Uh, most patients with high-grade uh, gastric lymphoma are currently treated with chemotherapy and radiation without surgical resection. A very important point in your exams, whenever you are faced with a case of cancer, you have to mention tumor board. Discussion at tumor board is essential. Um, this is the end of uh, my talk. Thank you. Uh, Doctor, uh, we have some questions uh, we, that have been sent throughout uh, the webinar. Uh, first question was from uh, Dr. Bader Shaban. He was yes. asking, uh, would, you, would your resection be any different if it was intestinal versus diffuse gastric cancer type? Um, I, I don't think it will change the management um, in terms of the uh, resection, but usually it is thought with the diffuse gastric uh, uh, type, you'll have a more aggressive disease, so you would want a more aggressive resection. But now the standard of care is aggressive. The standard of care is to perform a D2 lymphadenectomy. So um, um, I don't think it will change uh, much that. And uh, there is another question from El Mesa. Uh, how would you approach a patient when he has a duodenal ulcer and pyloric stenosis? So, if you have a patient with a duodenal ulcer and pyloric stenosis, you mean gastrocortical obstruction? They would usually. So, if you have a pyloric stenosis, you are going to have a gastrocortical obstruction. You will treat them first conservatively. You'll give H. pylori eradication. You'll give PPI infusion for three days, then maximum therapy of PPI. You would feed the patient uh, by TPN, and if they open up, you will pass a dub off tube feed. And then you will wait for four to six weeks. Then you will repeat the endoscopy. If the repeat endoscopy can pass, fine. The patient is cured. You will take biopsies, make sure there is no cancer. If the endoscopist still cannot pass the stenosis, then you need to uh, perform uh, a distal gastrectomy. You will also need to rule out gastrin-producing tumors from the pancreas. Uh, should we continue the questions or do you want to start the MCQs first and then continue with the questions by the audience? Let's uh, start the MCQs first. We have five MCQs for you guys. Okay. So we'll start with the first question. Uh, everybody should be able to see it on their screen now. If you I mean, can. I want you to ask the question. Yeah. Uh, if you cannot see this, uh, the question, please close the chat and uh, you should be able to start seeing it. Okay, you can read the question, doctor. Yes, so 51 years old lady presents with vomiting of 24 hours duration and gastric distension and abdominal x-ray. Gastroscopy reveals an obstruction in the pyloric channel causing gastric obstruction. Biopsies could not be taken. What is the next step in the management? We'll wait for a moment while people are answering. You can start uh, looking at the Q&A panel uh, to see the questions by the audience while they answer. Okay. So we roughly got about 60% voted so far. We'll just wait a little bit extra. So most people answered uh, answer D. Good. <laughs> so we got the right um, answer. So first, you have gastrocortical obstruction, you would first treat conservatively with proton pump inhibitors and H. pylori eradication. That's the right answer. Okay, next question. Question. 
up now. So two years old gentleman presents with third episode of upper GI bleeding while he was in PPI. At endoscopy, multiple gastric and duodenal ulcers are found. In reviewing his history, you find out that he had similar findings at previous scopes and was treated um, for with H. pylori uh, treatment in the past. So what would you do? got about 55% of the votes. And most people, I'm gonna share the result now. Everybody put your final answers in. Okay, most people answered C. Okay, it's a good answer then um, um, because you have uh, the patient treated for H. pylori, it's recurrent, this third time, uh, he's not on NSAIDs, uh, then um, um, uh, you need to roll out gastrin-producing tumor in that situation. So let's go to the third question. Okay. Up now. Should all be seeing the question right now? Yeah. So 64 years old, heavy smoker, complaining of severe abdominal pain, not relieved by narcotics, two days post-distal gastrectomy, for malignant gastric obstruction. Upper GI swallow shows no anastomotic leak. The drain amylase is 7,000. Serum amylase is 120. What's the next step in the management? We're getting about close to 50%. Get your final answers in. Okay, we're gonna end it now. Most people answered question A. What's the, what's the answer? I cannot see it. Uh, most people answered question A. And- uh, well, I cannot see the answers. Can you put them back for me? Oh, okay, sorry. Yes, it's up now. Yeah, so yes, you would do, um, Exploration because this is most likely the scenario where there is a duodenal stump blowout. You will have drains in there, and the drain amylase will be very high, and the leak test will be negative in the barium swallow. So um, you need to go for exploration. That's how we diagnose usually a um, duodenal stump blowout. It's not going to be second day post op, maybe third or fourth, but uh, you can have it. Uh, as early as second uh, post-operative day. Next question. Okay. This is our fourth question up. 30 years old Asian worker is complaining of severe abdominal pain. You diagnose perforated ulcer in the operating room. You cannot close the defect with an omental patch. What is your next step? Okay, so what what answers did they give? Uh, we've got about sixty-five percent of people. Okay. Uh, we'll just give them a minute. The fifth question. So most people answered C. Yeah, so you can use a mushroom tube, close as much as possible of the defect around the mushroom tube, and drain the area uh, widely. That's a simple. 
way of uh, doing this. If you want, you can add the pyloric uh, exclusion if you can, um, but it depends on, 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 on what, we, what you find and how extensive is the damage uh, around the uh, duodenum. Next. Fifth question is up right now. What is the preferred chemotherapy approach for resectable gastric cancer? It's an easy question. Good, FLOT. So FLOT is the uh, uh, current approach, and the study was published in The Lancet in 2019. Good, Mumtaz. What's next now, Ali? Uh, we will uh, just check the Q&A panel. We received uh, a few questions. Uh, so most of, I looked at the questions. Most of them, them are uh, usually medic medical. There is one question about managing dumping syndrome. Uh, dumping syndrome can happen after any gastric surgery, and you would manage it first by uh, uh, by um, uh, a nutrition consult. You would, you would avoid um, caffeine, uh, sugar, uh, simple carbs. You would avoid mixing food with uh, with liquid. That's the first approach to uh, dumping syndrome. Uh, in terms of the, there is another question: Will diagnostic laparoscopy pose risk of metastasis if the peritoneal mets are present? If the peritoneal mets are present, then distant metastasis wouldn't matter because peritoneal mets are considered distant metastasis. Okay, so I I don't I think these are the important questions. Uh, to answer some questions are better suited for um, some questions are more medical um, if anyone has any further question you can type it in the chat now uh, if not just would like to say thank you uh, for this informative lecture I personally learned a lot and I'm sure many people did so We'll be looking forward for your next lecture with you on uh, surgical diseases of the small bowel. Uh, that will be on this Wednesday. We're going to talk about uh, carcinoid, adenocarcinoma, and GIST. So GIST, adenocarcinoma, carcinoid on uh, Tuesday, inshallah. And uh, since uh, I don't see any further question, I understand the, the, I know you have precious time, and so we'll be concluding. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you, everybody, for attending. And good luck. Thank you, everybody.